We're going to be spending a few minutes in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and we'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you talk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which, to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to, Jer to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. That's where we'll finish our reading for this morning. Let's pray before we study this more closely together. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather together as your church. And we thank you this morning for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you that by your word you reveal yourself to us. And we just ask that for all of us, you would grant us open hearts to receive what you would have to say to us through it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, can I have a slide up, please, Brian? Oh, it's not very clear, but that's okay. You can maybe see it there. Can anyone, as we start this morning, can anyone firstly see what that is? And secondly, if you can, can you tell me what it is? 
a platypus. Well done, very well done, especially in the dark. It is a duck-billed platypus. Now, if you can see it, you'll see that they are pretty amazing-looking things. And they're so amazing that when some European explorers first found the duck-billed platypus, they sent a skin of a platypus home to prove what they had found. And people weren't really sure what to make of it when they got their skin. And in fact, one biologist, a guy called George Shaw, was sent a platypus skin by a colleague of his at the end of the 18th century. And he didn't believe that it was a real creature. It wasn't unknown for explorers of that time to fake discoveries of weird animals. So when Shaw first saw the skin of the platypus, he said this, It naturally excites the idea of some deceptive preparation by artificial means. Or to you and to me, it looks like a fake. Now, he thought it had been stitched together using the bill of a duck, a beaver's body, and an otter's feet. And it wasn't until he got the skin back to his own lab, he stripped the fur back, And he was satisfied that I couldn't see any stitches, that he finally believed this was the real deal. Now, you'll have heard the cliched saying, seeing is believing. Well, our pal, the duck-billed platypus, proves the point that sometimes that saying is only partly true. Because even seeing something with our own eyes isn't always enough to convince us that it's legitimate. It's only when we're able to test that evidence, to examine it, to poke it, to prod it, to make sure that it's real. Only then are we satisfied that what we are seeing is actually what it purports to be. You can slide down, please, Brian. And we see exactly that principle played out in chapter 24 of an account of a life of Jesus written by a man called Luke. In Luke 24, our author gives us three snapshots of Jesus' followers on that first Resurrection Sunday. And in each of the snapshots, Luke is preoccupied with the fact that even Jesus' closest followers, those who'd followed him all through his ministry, even they thought the resurrection was all a bit far-fetched. Look really briefly with me at verses 1 to 12 of chapter 24, if you still have your Bible open. And in verses 1 to 12, we read about the morning of that first resurrection Sunday. Jesus had, been di- had died and been buried on the Friday. And some women who were followers of Jesus, they went to his tomb on the Sunday morning to anoint his dead body with oils and spices. They were to stop it from smelling. And they arrive at the tomb to find that the stone is rolled away. Verse 2. And an angel appears to tell them that Jesus has risen. Startled as they are, they go to the rest of Jesus' closest followers to tell them what they've just seen. And instead of believing the women, verse 11 of chapter 24, most of the disciples think that it's nonsense. It's just a story. Luke's words are, it's an idle tale. And of all of them, only one of them that we read in Luke 24, Peter, takes that story seriously enough to go and have a look for himself. Peter goes to the grave. He sees the grave clothes neatly folded in the tomb. In verse 12, he marvels at what he's seen. But even then, it still isn't a slam dunk for Peter that the resurrection had really happened as these women 
had told them. So that's the morning. Then skip on with me to verse 36 of chapter 24. Now in verse 36, we see the resurrection Sunday evening. Neil is going to speak on this in detail next Sunday, so I won't go into much detail. All I want you to notice this morning is that Jesus himself appears to the disciples and they think, verse 39, it's a ghost. That's all they think it is. So he shows them the nail wounds in his hands and his feet and they still can't quite believe that it's him. And so in verse 43, Jesus eats a fish supper in front of them to prove that it's really him, that he isn't a ghost. Now, we might be tempted to think of the disciples or of those first witnesses to the resurrection as being simple people, gullible people, or perhaps that they had a predisposition to believe that the resurrection would happen. They had followed Jesus all their life. They were disappointed that he died. And so they were just, they were grasping at straws. But Luke makes it clear that that wasn't the case. Just like George Shaw, even after seeing the risen Jesus with their own eyes, the disciples don't believe the resurrection has happened. Luke shows the disciples being shown more and more flesh and blood evidence for the resurrection to show that the evidence is under scrutiny and that it stands up to that scrutiny. And so it's only right at the end of the chapter in verse 52 that we get an indication that the disciples are convinced that it's him as they worship him. So as we start this morning, I want you to see that to believe in the resurrection, both for those first witnesses and for us, is not to switch your brain off. The evidence for the resurrection has to stand up to scrutiny. And in Luke 24, the evidence does stand up to scrutiny. But that's not what exactly we're going to be focusing on this morning. It's really helpful background. It's important we understand that. But in the verses we read this morning, I wonder if you noticed a bit of a difference. See, the two disciples we meet on the Sunday afternoon, one called Cleopas and the other isn't named, they're not shown any evidence for the resurrection. No evidence to prove that Jesus has risen. Certainly not initially. Verse 15 While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This is the interesting bit. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, if Luke is trying to convince his readers, he's trying to convince us of the reliability of the evidence for the resurrection. Why bother including this story? The disciples are actively kept from seeing and understanding the fact that Jesus is physically in front of them. What is Luke's point? Well, we'll see that in our first heading for this morning. You'll see on your service sheet there are a number of headings, and this is our first one, a surprising indictment. So in this middle section, we've met two followers of Jesus, and they're on the road from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And as the two are traveling, they're chatting just as you would, And at that moment, Jesus appears before them as another traveler on the road. And he starts walking with them. And he asks them what they're talking about. And they answer, verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. Cleopas explains how disappointed they are that their leaders died. We had such great expectations for this Jesus. We hoped he was going to be the one who was going to come and save Israel, the conquering king. But on Friday, he was crucified. He's dead and he's buried. The dream is over. Now, we've just seen that Luke has packed this chapter with evidence for the resurrection. His aim is to show us that Jesus really was appearing to his disciples and that the evidence that it really was him stood up to scrutiny. So what we're expecting at this stage in the Emmaus Road story, after Cleopas has explained how disappointed they are, is for Jesus to say, verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and how slow to believe the evidence that's right in front of you. Look at my hands, look at my feet, look where the nail marks are. It's me, I'm alive. The evidence is right there. But that's not what he says. Well, then maybe instead of pointing to evidence, we'd expect Jesus to point back, to point to the disciples' own experience of Jesus. Because throughout his life, Jesus had repeatedly predicted his own death and resurrection during his ministry. Oh, foolish ones, and so slow to believe all that I had taught you about my death and resurrection. But again, that's not what he says, is it? What does he say? Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their unwillingness to believe the evidence that's staring them right in the face. He doesn't rebuke them for their failure to remember their own experience of Jesus' teaching. All that he had told them would happen. Now, Jesus' reason for rebuking them is apart from that evidence, and apart from their own experience, they already had enough to go on. They already had enough information to know that the resurrection was to be expected. Jesus says, the Old Testament scriptures told you all you needed to know. Why are you so upset? Seeing isn't believing. Reading is believing, says Jesus. Now, isn't that surprising? Especially in the context of Luke 24. Luke makes such a big deal of the evidence. This is physically happening. And yet Jesus says, no, no, you didn't need more evidence. It's right there in front of you. Now, for us, we aren't faced with quite the same straight choice that Cleopas and his friend were faced with. That choice between believing the evidence and believing the scriptures. Because if we've, as we've already seen this morning, when we read the New Testament, we read eyewitness accounts of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So for us, it isn't just that we believe the scriptures and never mind the evidence. For us, the two are one and the same. But perhaps the clearer challenge to us 
is to the person who is waiting for something more. Waiting for a silver bullet before you'll finally make a decision about Jesus. So let me ask you this morning, are you holding out for something before you'll believe? Are you holding out for some physical, before your very eyes, evidence before you will believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Or are you waiting for some moving spiritual experience before you'll believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Why won't God just show himself to me? Why won't he give me some evidence that he exists? Then I might believe all this stuff. To be honest, it's kind of his fault that I'm not believing. No, Jesus says that to read the Bible, to read the scriptures, isn't just to be informed. To read the scriptures is to be confronted with enough information to make a decision. What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because the fact is that all of us, every single one of us sat in this room this morning, regardless of what your parents think or your children think, regardless of what your spouse thinks, regardless of what your friends or your, your peers or your colleagues think, regardless of what the person sat right next to you at this very second thinks, all of us have to do something with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're waiting for a lightning bolt from the sky, or you're waiting for a dramatic spiritual experience before you'll make a decision about Jesus, Jesus himself says, you already have enough information to go on. It's time to make a decision. Did this really happen? And if it did happen, then there are huge personal implications to that. And we'll look at that in a bit more detail later on. But stick a pin in those implications for a moment. First things first, you have to make a decision about the resurrection and whether it really physically happened. But perhaps you're here this morning and you do believe in the resurrection. You're a convinced Christian. Well, there's a really helpful application to us too. Over the past few months here at Chalmers, we have been reading another account of the life of Jesus written by a guy called John Mark. And we've been learning all about that account, learning to get to grips with it, to equip us so that we can read that account with other people. And the tagline of the whole project, the whole gospel project, is to let God's word do God's work. And the, the notion behind that is that the Bible with the work of the Holy Spirit, has the power to change people's lives. So let me ask you this morning, do you really believe that? Because I reckon that a lot of us would love for an expert scientist to come in and give us classes in how to handle the issue of science and religion. Or to give us apologetics talks that we can invite our friends along to. We'd love for a professor of philosophy to give us a good grounding in the issue of suffering and a, a biblical apologetic for suffering. Or maybe, maybe we'd even like for some of our friends or our colleagues to have a moving experience of God during some worship type event. 
You know, if he came along to that event and, and he had that experience while the music's playing really loudly and the guy's talking over the top of the music, then maybe he'd believe this stuff. Now, Jesus could easily have wowed Cleopas and his friend by showing him his hands and his feet, the hands and feet that had been nailed to a cross three days, two days previously. He could have appealed to the experience of Jesus, but instead he appeals to the scriptures as being all they needed to believe that the resurrection would happen. And when you really believe that, it allows you to trust God's word to do God's work. If you're a Christian here this morning and you're nervous about reading Mark's gospel with a friend, as I suspect that most of us are, I hope you find that an encouragement this morning. But I've perhaps been a bit misleading. Because this whole reading is believing thing isn't the full story. Jesus makes a big deal of the fact that the scriptures are all you need to know to make a decision about him. And he gives the disciples a right telling off for not believing that. But I wonder if you noticed as we read this morning the chain of events in this little encounter. See, it isn't that Cleopas and his friend have a Bible study with Jesus on the road and they get down on their knees and they ask him into their life. After the Bible study, they keep walking with Jesus and it isn't until they sit down for dinner later that evening that Jesus physically reveals himself to them, verse 31, at which point they believe. So, have I been flapping my gums? Or is Luke shooting himself in the foot here? Is he undermining his own point about the sufficiency of the Bible? Well, I don't think he is. We'll see that in our next point this morning, a divine intervention. Now, it's true that it isn't until Jesus is physically revealed to his disciples that they actually believe it's him. But it isn't the building weight of evidence in front of Cleopas and his friend that finally pushed them over the line, is it? Verse 30. And when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Notice that Luke doesn't say that they opened their eyes and saw who Jesus was. He doesn't even say that the the weight of the evidence finally made them recognize him. Luke says that their eyes were opened. Just as earlier on, verse 19, their eyes had been kept from seeing him. The active agent was something or someone external to them. Do you see that? Now, there's a whole lot of argument between the commentators. There quite often tends to be about anything. There's a whole lot of argument between the commentators about the breaking of bread reference. Some think that it's a reference to the Last Supper, where Jesus had broken bread with his disciples the night before he was crucified. Others think it's a reference much further back to um, the feeding of the 5,000, and both seem fairly legitimate I'm not sure we can be too dogmatic about either one. Because regardless of which one is correct, I think that Luke's point is that something external, something miraculous had to happen. There had to be an intervention taking place in the life of Cleopas and his friend before they would recognize who Jesus is. And again, 
I hope that gives us some comfort if we're Christians. I was chatting with someone in Chalmers a couple of weeks ago about the gospel project who will remain nameless. Uh, and they were really helpfully and really honestly speaking about the nervousness they feel about reading through Mark's gospel with a friend. And the question they asked was, what happens if the person I'm reading Mark with doesn't just follow the questions and starts picking up on the nitty-gritty details? And I can't answer the questions. Or even worse, what happens if I take a punt as some of us are loath to do, some of us with mouths bigger than they ought to be like me, take a punt at the questions, make such a hash of it that I end up putting them off altogether. Isn't that a real, it's a real thought, it's a real concern. What questions are my friends going to ask? What if I answer them and put them off? Well, Jesus is clear that the Bible is all that people need to make a decision about him, but... At the same time, try as hard as you might, I can categorically tell you this morning that nothing you can ever do will ever make your friend or colleague or workmate become a Christian. Recognizing Jesus for who he really is requires God himself to intervene. It's an external intervention Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, your ears have maybe perked up a little bit, because this might mean that you don't bear any responsibility at all for your decision of whether to follow Jesus or not. If it's a supernatural act of God, then why not just sit back, wait for him to turn the lights on? Well, I don't think we can really allow ourselves to get away with that either. Jesus is clear with his disciples that they do bear responsibility See what he says in verse 25. Oh, foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe. If there's no responsibility on them, how can Jesus rebuke them? No, you need to engage with what's in front of you. And yet, becoming a Christian is not something that you do in a vacuum, entirely by yourself. Yes, it involves a rational weighing of the evidence, but it also requires an external intervention by God himself. Now, I've tried to show you this morning that the resurrection is real. It's an historical event. And that Luke's point all the way through chapter 24 is that you have enough information in front of you to make a decision about Jesus. And while you might be here this morning and you're still unsure about what conclusion to reach as a result of that evidence... I suspect that the principle of studying the resurrection, studying the evidence, looking at eyewitness testimony accounts, all of that seems rational enough. All of it seems reasonable enough to anyone who's thoughtful when considering the resurrection. But this last point about divine intervention, about opening eyes, about transformation, that all sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? In fact, it all sounds the opposite of rational. Perhaps you've found yourself through this second point thinking that all my worst suspicions about those Christians are confirmed. But I want you to notice that the ultimate change that happens to Cleopas and his friend isn't irrational. In fact, it's an entirely logical step. That's our final point for this morning, a necessary implication. 
Now, you may well have missed it as we read through the story, but there is a clear change that takes place in Cleopas and his friend during the course of the passage. And it is the logical result of the resurrection being true. What do I mean? Well, look back and notice what Cleopas and his friends say about Jesus when they're on the road with him. Remember, at this stage, they both think that Jesus is dead. They think the dream is over. Verse 19, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Jesus was a man. He was a prophet. He was a pretty good one. He didn't said some fairly amazing things, but he's still just a prophet. And then skip on to what they say after their eyes have been opened, after they've seen the risen Jesus for themselves. Verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed. No longer just Jesus the man, no longer just Jesus the prophet even. The Lord has risen. Isn't that a striking change? Now, I've lost count of the number of times that I have been chatting with a colleague or a friend, and they've told me that, Johnny, I would love to have your faith. Just love to have your faith. It clearly gives you great comfort in life and guides you. But to be honest, I just can't believe the Bible because I disagree with what it teaches. And for some people, it's ethical teaching on money, for example. For most um, that I would speak to now, it's the Bible's teaching on sexuality and on gender. And it's quite a revealing response. Because the truth is, for a lot of us, we decide what to believe, not first and foremost based on what is objectively true. For most of us, we decide what to believe based on what we like and on what we don't like. Now, that might rub against the grain with you if you consider yourself to be rational and empirical thinker. But you have to acknowledge that even the most hardened of empiricists does not make decisions in a vacuum. At the very least, you are influenced by what you want to believe to be true. But the question I want to ask you this morning, if you would find yourself in that boat, I'd love to believe, but the ethical teaching is just a bit dodge. Does your disagreement with the moral or ethical teaching of the Bible, does your disagreement with what the Bible teaches about sex or money or, or gender, does that mean that Jesus Christ could not have been physically resurrected from the dead? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. And when you lay it out like that, you see how irrational it is to conflate those two things. Because the truth is, if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, if he died on the Friday and that was it, then in verse 19, Cleopas is absolutely right. He was a man who was a prophet. He was nothing more than that. So if you disagree with what the Bible teaches about ethics or morality, then that's your call. But... If Jesus was physically raised from the dead, then there is a necessary and unavoidable and a fully entirely logical implication. Because the resurrection is so extraordinary, it's so unlike any other historical event, 
that it completely changes our framework for understanding who Jesus is. He's no longer just a man. He's no longer just a good prophet whose teachings we can take or leave as we see fit. If the resurrection really happened, then Jesus is absolutely vindicated in who he claimed to be, which is nothing short of God himself. And more than that, if the resurrection really happened, then Jesus is the rightful King and Lord of you and me. But what about morality? What about ethics? What about sexuality? What about gender? Now, those are really good questions, and you need to ask them, and you need to wrestle with them, and that's good and right, but do not treat them as something that they're not. They are not stumbling blocks to a belief in the resurrection. And so I asked this question earlier this morning. Jesus says you have enough to go on to make a decision about him. He stands in the middle of all time and all of history as the most famous man to have ever walked this planet. And his resurrection is the defining moment in all of history. You have to do something with it. So let me ask you this morning, what are you going to do? If you've never considered this before, I would urge you in the strongest possible terms to really think about it. Read a gospel account, either by yourself or ask Laura or Sam and me. I'm more than happily read through a gospel account with you to look at it more closely. If the resurrection really happened, then Jesus is God himself. And if that's the case, then it's time for all of us, whether for the first, for the hundredth time, to bow the knee before our king. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's not just wishful thinking. We thank you that it's, it's not just platitudes, but that it's real, that it's concrete, that it gives us evidence for the resurrection. Lord, for those of us who are here this morning and who've never fully thought about it, help them to see that Jesus if he really was raised from the dead, is nothing short of God himself. And that the only logical implication to that is to bow the knee before him as Lord of everything. Lord, would you open our eyes this morning to see you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.